Well, I think this is going to be the, the last message, if I could call it that, in a series on experiencing or, or practicing the presence of God. Uh, even as I say the last message, I think just about every message is about the presence of God and practicing the presence of God. But this has kind of been a, a focus. And as I said a little bit earlier this morning, if you were in uh, uh, Pastor Bob's adult Bible class, uh, you're going to recognize a lot of the things I say and some of the scriptures that I read. But I think uh, repetition is a good thing, especially in this area of understanding just who we are in Christ. Because the enemy keeps us in such bondage if we listen to his lies. And a lot of times his lies have been established and, and the roots go deep in our upbringing even, in our traditions. And that's really, when, when you look at Hebrews and all about the New Covenant, it, it's, it, it's such a freeing, freeing thing when we understand the gospel and all that it includes. I want to start by sharing a, an experience I had with a lady, a babushka, a Russian grandmother. Back in the early 90s, mid-90s, uh, I was part of a small group. I talked to Elaine. Elaine Swift was with us on that trip. We went to a city in, in north-central Siberia called Radushny. And we were privileged to be some of the very, very first Christians in that city. The Jehovah Witnesses had already beaten us there. And the Orthodox Church had a little church. And one of the meetings, we were sharing about Jesus, and we'd showed the Jesus film and and I remember this one lady, I'll, I'll never forget her description, and I've shared this with you, some of the people here before. But I, I went up to this old elderly grandma, this Russian babushka, and I said, do you know God? And she said, yes. And I said, can you tell me about your idea of who God is? And she said, yes. And then she proceeded to describe this picture that is really depressing. She says, God, I see God as, as this God sitting on a throne out there somewhere, and I can see him, and I can see him on the throne, but he's got his back to me. And I try to earn my way to get closer and closer to the throne. And every now and then he'll look back at me to see how I'm doing. And if I'm not doing well, he disciplines me. If I'm doing okay, he just turns back and faces the other way and allows me to work my way a little closer. Talk about a bondage if that's the God that you think is our Heavenly Father. You know, I, I read a couple of old prayers this week, and I say old, I'm talking like 1600s. But if you're like me and you grew up in certain types of churches, they ring familiar to you. But I want to read part of a couple of these prayers. Almighty and merciful Father, we have erred and we have strayed from your ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended against you and your holy law. We have left undone those things we should have done and we have done those things which we ought not to have done. And there is no health in us. But thou, O Lord, have mercy upon us, miserable offenders. Spare thou them, O God, who confess their faults. Restore thou them that are penitent, according to the promises declared unto man in Christ Jesus. O grant, O most merciful God, for his sake, that we may hereafter live godly and righteous and a sober life, 
that your name would be glorified. And I, I read prayer after prayer. And though as I'm reading those prayers, I understand there's some elements of truth in there for sure. But there is no joy. I see no hope. I see no relationship. It's all about this God who's almost unapproachable and I'm this miserable, no good sinner who has to almost grovel at his feet every day or every week, at least on Sunday morning, as if I would read the next prayer where the the, the minister got to absolve them of their sins again. And I'm thinking, where in the world did that come from if they started with the Word of God? Because as we study the Word of God, we don't see that kind of God in the New Testament anywhere. If you study and read in Ephesians and in Hebrews that, that the class is studying, we don't see that kind of God. We see a God who wants us to be able to approach Him with confidence. Approach him with confidence and a, and a certain hope and a peace and a comfortable, uh, comfortable attitude in our spirit that we are going to a God who loves us more than we can imagine. And we're not going up there to get our wrists slapped or get spanked or get beaten or watch him turn his back on us and keep us at arm's distance. We don't need to grovel to approach God. We don't need to use fancy King James English to approach God. I mean, if you like it, that's fine. But it's not necessary. He just wants us to spend time in his presence. There's this wonderful thing called the gospel. And I think way too often we we get familiar with the gospel. But we don't understand anywhere near what it all entails. When I say the gospel, a lot of us think of, oh, I got saved, I escaped hell. And that's true. And that's great. But the gospel, salvation, deliverance, the living God living and dwelling in each one of us, the loving God living and dwelling in each one of us, his spirit, our spirit, together. Joint heirs with Jesus Christ, we're called children of God, we're called his friend. Because of the gospel, the power in the gospel, the glory of the gospel. The gospel message is what made the door open for us to have access to his presence. You know, we're, we're familiar with, and I talked a little bit last week about, about the temple, about the, how there was this big veil that separated the normal people from the presence of God in the Holy of Holies, and how when Christ died, that veil was torn from top to bottom, a picture of our being able to enter in because of what Christ did. In Ephesians 3, verse 11, it says this. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. Paul says that the Lord Jesus, in the Lord Jesus, we have confidence and a boldness to approach him. In Hebrews 10, verse 19 through 22, it says, Therefore, my brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, that's Jesus, let us draw near with a sincere heart and a full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. What he's writing in Hebrews and what Paul writes to the Ephesians is, we can have a boldness, a confidence to enter in. 
The words translated boldness in Ephesian and confidence in Hebrew is the Greek word parousia. And that word carries the, the connotation of, of freedom, a frankness, and an openness. That we can go to him freely. You know, as Bob was sharing this morning, so often we, we think we've got to grovel and so much of, a, of religion basically trained us that way. That we have got to be somehow or other perfectly holy and righteous in our own strength before we can go to God. And when we have that attitude, that attitude in us, it's really a sinful attitude. Because Jesus Christ died for just the opposite of that. That we can enter in boldly and confidently because of what Christ did through the gospel. As I shared a few weeks ago, you know, we were created. Part of our purpose was to enter into the presence of God. It's why he created us. He wants fellowship with us. The scriptures we said, it was predetermined. This was God's plan from the beginning. You know, as soon as Adam and Eve sinned, this plan started to unfold. And all through the Old Testament, there's a picture of Christ. We see it through all the sacrifices, all the ceremony, all of that stuff that, that, boy, thank God, we don't have to do it anymore. But it all pointed to Christ, the perfect sacrifice, who died one time for all of our sins. You know, you'll hear Bob say this, and you'll hear me say this, and you'll probably hear others say this over and over and over to us so we get it in, in our head and our heart. But my sins are forgiven because of Christ. Everything that I've ever done in the past, present, or future, they're already forgiven. Man, that should just be like chains falling off of us when we understand that. That doesn't mean we're going to be perfect. Of course not. It doesn't mean that, that we can do anything we want. Of course not. But what it means is the voice of the enemy or our traditions or things people have said and done to try to tell us that somehow we're not good enough, we're not worthy, that brings us into this place of guilt or shame or condemnation. What it means is none of that stuff is true. None of it. Can you imagine... If, if you're trying to walk into the presence of God, as I mentioned last week, and you're dragging this garbage of guilt and shame and condemnation behind you, and yet you're supposed to go in and feel the presence and the peace and the love and the joy, you won't. And that's why the enemy wants to keep us bound with that garbage that's already been dealt with. We need to get it set in our heart who we are in Jesus Christ so we can come openly and honestly assured of our salvation and confident in our relationship with him. Confident in our relationship. Children of God. Joint heirs with Jesus Christ. You know, if you remember a few weeks ago, I started by talking about Moses when he went up to the mountain and he went up and met with God. And he he said, you know, God, this has been great so far, but I want to see your glory. And he told him, you know what, you need to kind of get in the cleft of a rock here. You need to protect yourself. And as I walk by, I'll, I'll let you see my glory. And when he came down off the mountain, it says he had to cover his face because his face glowed with the glory of God. But the interesting thing is it was a temporary demonstration of the glory of God. I'm going to read a few verses, and I don't know that maybe all of them are on the screen. I can't remember. But in 2 Corinthians starting at verse 12. 
chapter 3. Having therefore such a boldness, we use great boldness in our speech and are not as Moses. Okay, so now he's saying we're not as Moses. He's actually going to say we had it better than Moses. He says, who used a veil over his face that the sons of Israel might not look intently at the end of what was fading away. A lot of us here, I bet, have never saw that in that scripture. We think of the glory, how his face glowed, and it was, he had to cover it with the veil so that people wouldn't be afraid. You know what they were afraid of? The glory of God. The glory of God. They were afraid of it. But what it's telling us here is he kept the veil over his face so that they wouldn't see the reality that that glory was actually fading away. And Paul is saying this to make a statement that the glory of God that we experience because of the gospel is a glory that never fades away. It's not a temporal glory. It's not an earthly. It's not a fleshly. It's not a materialistic glory. It's the glory of the Holy Spirit in us around us, demonstrating the glory of God. And we can see the glory of God in creation, but, you know, we say that and we don't see something tangible. We just look at it and we sense the Spirit of God in all of creation. You and I are called to be demonstrations of the glory of God. That's pretty wacky, isn't it? You are supposed to be demonstrating the glory of God. That when people look at us, what they see is the glory of God. It's his glory through us because of the gospel, through Christ. Then it talks about the people of Israel. It says, but their minds were hardened. For until this very day at the reading of the old covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. In other words, they're still behind the veil because the thing that removes the veil is Christ. And they have not accepted Christ as their Lord and Savior. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, in other words, the first five books of the law, whenever it's read, a veil lies over their heart. But verse 16 says, But whenever a man turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty, there's freedom, there's joy, there's peace. And verse 18 says, but we all, now Paul's talking to you and me, he's talking to the church, Christ church. He says, but we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit, you and I being transformed from glory to glory as we spend time in the presence of God, as we allow the Holy Spirit in us, as we believe what the Word says, as we understand what the gospel message is, unveiled glory. And when you look at this, the unveiled glory of God can probably be seen as in, 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 in this place as well as anywhere else, and that place is the gospel, the gospel message. The simple message of the gospel, showing and demonstrating the glory of God for all of us. That Jesus, God loved us so much that he sent his only son to earth as a child to walk among man, to grow among men, 
to experience temptation just like we've all experienced, but to live a sinless life and to die on a cross for my sins, for my sins. He died that Mike, that my sins could be dealt with forever. That I don't have to fear God in a scared sense. Fear Him in awe and reverence, absolutely. But I don't have to be afraid. He's not a father sitting with his back to me waiting for me to goof up so he can club me. Maybe, if I'm really good, sneak a little closer to his throne, the back of his throne. No, he's a heavenly father who says through the gospel, in the gospel message, we see his perfect justice. We see his goodness. We see his mercy. We see his kindness. We see his love. We can see his compassion. All demonstrations of his glory. We make this thing out about his glory to be something almost ethereal that we can't hardly imagine or speak of or think about. When we talk about the the glory of God, we're talking about the beauty of his Holy Spirit. Not a material beauty necessary, but a beauty that, that emanates from his character. And this is why I can say, if Jesus lives in me by the Holy Spirit, his character is there, his glory can emanate from us. It's as if we can stand in front of a mirror and see a reflection of his glory as we're being transformed from glory to glory to glory because we're in the presence of God. That's amazing to me. I don't understand it all, but I'm amazed by it that somehow or other the glory of God can be demonstrated to the world through me. Amazing. And not because of anything that I can do. Nothing It really has very little to do with me except my body is a carrier of his glory because the Holy Spirit lives and dwells in me. So even though we can enter enter into his presence boldly and with confidence, we need to make sure that we're never presumptive and we're never arrogant in the way we relate to him. He's still God. He's still our Heavenly Father. But we need to be reminded He's love. His character is love. When Paul wrote to the the Ephesians, he wrote in uh, chapter 3, verse 14, he says, for this reason, and he's just talked about God and his, his, his gracious glory, the gospel, all of this stuff, the veil being removed. And then he says, for this reason, I bow my knee to the Father. Not out of being afraid of the Father, not out of this concern that I'm going to be disciplined and clubbed by the Father. I bow my knee to the Father out of thanksgiving and gratitude and reverence and awe of who He is. And because who He is, He loves me so much. You know, when we begin to get that, we can get past all the religious garbage that we've heard or maybe we're even raised in, all this religious that you've got to do, you've got to perform. And not only the religious garbage that tells us that, most of us grow up in a culture where performance is everything. How much do you have? How much do you own? How much money do you have? How big is your house? Where's your car? How do you look? Blah, 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 blah. And some of us buy into that. doesn't mean a thing. If you don't believe that, we'll take a picture of your coffin. And you're going to be the only thing in it. The rest of it won't matter at all. In Ephesians 3, verses 14 through 19, continuing from what I said, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven on earth derives its name. Then listen to all of this. That he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man 
the glory of God, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, the glory of God, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, the height, and depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God, his glory. Our access to God, to his presence, and his glory is completely, solely based on Jesus. There's no other way. And to most of us in here, you probably go, well, dumb, Mike, we all know that. The reality is the world's trying to come up with a better way, a different way. Churches are afraid to declare what I just read as a scripture, that there, no is, there is no other way. Look at John chapter 14, verse 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. You cannot be a Christian and believe there is another way to the Father because the only way is through Jesus Christ, His Son. And this is Jesus speaking. says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. There is no other way. What about all those well-intentioned Hindus, Muslims, Jehovah Witnesses, Mormons, etc., etc., etc.? I'm sorry. We need to love them. But the only way to Jesus, to God the Father is through Jesus. And we need to proclaim that because our culture is trying to tell us it's not true. It's not true. The one thing we need to be involved with in our culture more than anything else is sharing the gospel. The message of the gospel. You know, we, we were, went up for just a couple of days, well, not even 24 hours really, to a conference this past weekend. And one of the brothers that spoke had just come back from Iran. And he was, you know, about an inch taller than me and about a foot wider than me. And he says, I'm kind of hard to hide in Iran. But he says, you know what? We discovered something that we should have never forgotten. You know, it didn't matter how persuasive my speech was. It didn't matter how my gifts were operating. It didn't matter... How many people, how many, how many opportunities we had, nothing worked. Talking to the Muslims except one thing, the gospel. He said, when we would just go back and share the simple gospel of how much God loves you and what he did for you and that there can be total peace and joy in the presence of God. Muslims were getting saved like crazy. He says, the gospel message And we can so easily forget that as the church. We have a message that almost seems too simple. When we listen to all that's going on in the world today, when we look at our culture today, you know, you might be called to be an activist of some sort. That's okay. I'm not trying to criticize that. But we can get so filled with fear and we can argue and debate and we can get into Facebook wars. We can do all those foolish things thinking we're going to convince somebody, argue with somebody, get more persuasive argument, and they're going to break down finally and say, okay, you win. I want to accept Jesus. It's not going to happen. The gospel. Jesus loves you. He loves you. He, get, he provided a gift for each one of us. His son to die on a cross. That's how much he loves you. And because he did that, he's offering you this gift saying, if you believe that, if you just believe that simple message that he died for you, your sins, as a sinless, spotless sacrifice, and that the Father raised him from the dead... He did this because he wants you to be free. He wants you to spend eternity in heaven. You can pray to a God who will answer your prayers. 
That's the gospel. That's what will penetrate the hardest of hearts. That's it. You don't have to be a genius. You don't have to be a theological wizard who can manipulate the scriptures and do all those things. But the reality is, if a person has never done that, if they have never accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, they're going to go to hell. They're going to spend eternity separated from him. I don't care how religious they are. I don't care how good they try to be in their own flesh and strength. It doesn't matter. They're under the judgment of sin. That's it. But we can be free of all that. All of that is washed away by the blood of Jesus and the resurrection power. It's just an amazing thing. And we're all called to go and share that as Luke and Samantha prayed over their daughter before she was even born, that she would have a boldness to share the gospel. Wow, great prayer. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so no one can boast. It's not about you and it's not about me. It's a gift from God. No room for human pride in God's kingdom. Your pride and my pride cannot stand before God's holiness, his majesty and glory. And it's so freeing when you realize you don't have to perform like a monkey on a string for God. He just wants to love you and wants you to love him back. And if you love him back, like Bob said this morning, all that other junk that we make rules and regulations, we just do that by nature because it's the new nature in us. We're a new creation in Christ. It's such a great deal. Because of his favor, because of his grace, that's why you and I have been adopted as his children. That's why you and I have been made joint heirs with Christ. You know, positionally, I, I love to picture this in my mind, that you know, God the Father's in his throne and it tells us that Jesus is seated at his right hand in his throne, but then it says, I'm joint heirs with Christ. I'm seated with him in heavenly places. I like to pretend in my mind that there I am. I see me. I'm seated with Christ given the authority that God the Father had given his son Jesus. Amazing truth. The word of God is true. In Ephesians 1.3, it says, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Think about that. It's all there for us. Every spiritual blessing. With the rights we have in Christ, we should be walking and living in joy. Just want to, I know I'm repeating myself so many times, but it, it's such a simple message that we just don't get. We have been redeemed by Jesus Christ. It's been redeemed. We've been redeemed. What does that mean? We were sold into sin. We were slaves of sin. Through Jesus' death on the cross, his resurrection, the price was paid in full. I've been redeemed. I'm no longer spiritually dead. I'm alive in Christ. I'm no longer that old person. I'm a new creation in Christ. My mind is being renewed by the word of God. We've been redeemed, completely redeemed, and we are his children. God is always with us. He's always with us. His spirit lives and dwells in us. And he will comfort us, he guides us, and he empowers us by his spirit. And we need to just accept these things as gifts from God. I mean, think about it. If you are a father or a mother and you give all these wonderful gifts to your kid and all they kept doing is saying, I don't want it. I don't get it. I don't care. I don't want it. I don't want it. We'd be devastated. 
Why grieve the Father's heart? He wants to bless us with every spiritual blessing, it says. And part of the problem with so many places, and I just pray that our church is not like that, never becomes like that, but in so many places, this presence of the Holy Spirit has disappeared because nobody talks about it. We bought into lies in either road ditch instead of staying on the road, staying on the path. The transforming power of the Holy Spirit is hardly present. You know, I think most of us would like to be better people. And as long as we keep trying to do it in the strength, it might be we might make some improvements, but boy, it just wears us out. And as soon as I mess up, all this guilt and shame and condemnation jumps on my back. But when I begin to realize all I have to do is surrender to the Holy Spirit, the transforming power of the Holy Spirit is on the inside and works its way out. And the pressure's off mic. All I have to do is say, Lord, I'm yours, show me. He lives in us. He speaks to us. We just need to remember, the only way in is through Jesus Christ. The only way to come into his presence. And I'm going to just close with one last thought. Practically, what do I need to do? What can I do practically? Because if you're like me, you want a list of things that I can do. Now realize, this list has nothing to do with you getting saved. Nothing. It's a gift of God. But we can increase the rate that the Holy Spirit transforms us by cooperating. How? Be in the Word. It's the living Word of God. It's primary. This is the primary tool that the Holy Spirit will use to transform us. Be in the Word of God. It shouldn't be hard work if we understand what it is. Spend time in prayer. Oh, prayer is so hard and boring. Wait a minute, you're talking to the living God. Work on that. Think about that. Spend time in prayer. Spend time meditating on his word. Just meditating. You know, for me it's kind of simplistic, but you know, that picture of me sitting in Jesus' lap and his throne is pretty cool to me. You might think it's juvenile. I like it. Because the Bible says that's where I am positionally. I'm seated with him. I meditate on that. What does that mean? What are the implications of all that? I'm sitting at the throne. I'm, I'm, I'm positioned in that position of authority. Another thing you can do is spend time with other believers, fellowshipping with other believers. And as you do these things, the Holy Spirit will use it all and he'll begin the transformation drawing you closer and closer. And you will be like that person standing in front of the mirror beholding the glory of God as you and I are being transformed from glory to glory. Let's close in prayer. Lord, I pray that you would help each one of us to understand and apply these things to our life. God, give us greater and greater revelation. We have the perfect teacher in the Holy Spirit. We have the perfect text your word. God, I pray that each one of us would open our hearts to receive whatever it is you have for us. God, I pray especially this morning, if there is someone here who has not walked through that door of the gospel message into your presence, if they've never accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, personally made that decision and declared it, I pray this morning, God, that your Holy Spirit would draw them like an irresistible force of love to that place of accepting Jesus and the gift of salvation through, by grace, through faith. 
And I pray, Lord, that we would truly begin to reflect your glory more and more, that it would draw others to you through us. Lord, and I'm so thankful that this is a work you do in each one of us, that I don't have to agonize over it. So I pray, Lord, we just walk in greater peace in your presence. And in your presence, your word says there is fullness of joy, that we would walk with joy in the love that you have for us. I pray now that as we go our separate way, you would watch over us, keep us safe, continue to draw us closer and closer to you by your Holy Spirit. And we pray these things that you would receive all the glory and honor as your kingdom is increased. In Jesus' name, amen.